This is the Boy's Life of Mark Twain, Chapter Twenty One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. The Boy's Life of Mark Twain by Albert Bigelow Payne, Chapter Twenty One The Territorial Enterprise. In eighteen fifty two, Virginia City, Nevada, was the most flourishing of mining towns. A half-crazy miner named Comstock had discovered there a vein of such richness that the Comstock lode was presently glutting the mineral markets of the world. Comstock himself got very little out of it, but those who followed him made millions. Miners, speculators, adventurers swarmed in. Everyone seemed to have money. The streets seethed with an eager, affluent, boisterous throng, whose chief business seemed to be to spend the wealth that the earth was yielding in such a mighty stream. Business of every kind boomed. Less than two years earlier, J. T. Goodman, a miner who was also a printer and a man of literary taste, had joined with another printer, Dennis McCarthy, and the two had managed to buy a struggling Virginia City paper, the Territorial Enterprise. But then came the high tide of fortune. A year later the Enterprise, from a starving sheet in a leaky shanty, had become a large, handsome paper in a new building, and of such brilliant editorial management that it was the most widely considered journal on the Pacific coast. Goodman was a fine, forceful writer, and he surrounded himself with able men. He was a young man, full of health and vigor, overflowing with the fresh spirit and humor of the West. Comstockers would always laugh at a joke, and Goodman was always willing to give it to them. The Enterprise was a newspaper, but it was willing to furnish entertainment even at the cost of news. William Wright, editorially next to Goodman, was a humorist of ability. His articles, signed Dan de Quill, were widely copied. R. M. Daggett, afterward United States Minister to Hawaii, was also an Enterprise man, and there were others of their sort. Samuel Clemens fitted precisely into this group. He brought with him a new turn of thought and expression. He saw things with open eyes, and wrote of them in a fresh, wild way that Comstockers loved. He was allowed full freedom. Goodman suppressed nothing. His men could write as they chose. They were all young together. If they pleased themselves, they were pretty sure to please their readers. Often they wrote of one another, squibs and burlesques, which gratified the Comstock far more than mere news. It was just the school to produce Mark Twain. The new arrival found acquaintance easy. The whole enterprise force was like one family. Proprietors, editor, and printers were social equals. Samuel Clemens immediately became Sam to his associates, just as De Quill was Dan and Goodman Joe. Clemens was supposed to report city items, and did, in fact, do such work, which he found easy, for his pilot memory made notes unnecessary. He could gather items all day, and at night put down the day's budget well enough, at least to delight his readers. When he was tired of facts, he would write amusing paragraphs, as often as not something about Dan or a reporter on a rival paper. Dan and the others would reply, and the Comstock would laugh. Those were good old days. Sometimes he wrote hoaxes. Once he told with great circumstance and detail of a petrified prehistoric man that had been found embedded in a rock in the desert, and how the coroner from Humboldt had traveled more than a hundred miles to hold an inquest over a man dead for centuries, 
and had refused to allow miners to blast the discovery from its position. The sketch was really intended as a joke on the Humboldt coroner, but it was so convincingly written that most of the coast papers took it seriously and reprinted it as the story of a genuine discovery. In time they awoke, and began to inquire as to who was the smart writer on the enterprise. Mark Twain did a number of such things, some of which are famous on the coast to this day. Clemens himself did not escape. Lamps were used in the Enterprise office, but he hated the care of a lamp, and worked evenings by the light of a candle. It was considered a great joke in the office to hide Sam's candle, and hear him fume and rage, walking in a circle meantime, a habit acquired in the pilot-house, and scathingly denouncing the culprits. Eventually the office-boy, supposedly innocent, would bring another candle, and quiet would follow. Once the office force, including Quill, McCarthy, and a printer named Stephen Gillis, of whom Clemens was very fond, bought a large imitation Meerschaum pipe, had a German silver plate set on it, properly engraved, and presented it to Samuel Clemens as genuine in testimony of their great esteem. His reply to the presentation speech was so fine and full of feeling that the jokers felt ashamed of their trick. A few days later, when he discovered the deception, he was ready to destroy the lot of them. Then, in atonement, they gave him a real meerschaum. Such things kept the Comstock entertained. There was a side to Samuel Clemens that, in those days, few of his associates saw. This was the poetic, the reflective side. Joseph Goodman, like Macfarlane in Cincinnati several years earlier, recognized this phase of his character and developed it. Often these two, dining or walking together, discussed the books and history they had read, quoted from poems that gave them pleasure. Clemens sometimes recited with great power the burial of Moses, whose noble phrasing and majestic imagery seemed to move him deeply. With eyes half-closed and chin lifted, a lighted cigar between his fingers, he would lose himself in the music of the stately lines. By Nebo's lonely mountain on this side Jordan's wave, in a vale in the land of Moab there lies a lonely grave, and no man knows that sepulchre, and no man saw it e'er, for the angels of God upturned the sod, and laid the dead man there. That his own writing would be influenced by the simple grandeur of this poem we can hardly doubt. Indeed, it may have been to him a sort of literary touchstone, that in time would lead him to produce, as has been said, some of the purest English written by any modern author. End of chapter 21